History is the most important subject that you can study. And if you can't see what's happening in the past, you can't look nearly as far in the future. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Men will still say, this was a final. This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. It is painful to watch your country die. And when it's happening, it's natural to reflect on what caused it. Where did it all go wrong? When was the moment there was no turning back? Maybe some of you are asking these questions today with your nation. These are the questions history lovers ask all the time with any past kingdom Take the tiny kingdom of Judah in the early 700s BCE. At that time, it was geographically located in the middle of two powers, Egypt and Assyria. Assyria was the superpower at the time. It had the best army, and it had absolutely ruthless leadership wielding it. If Assyria was going to expand in the early 700s BCE, it was going to expand west, and it'd have to go right through Judah. Egypt, on the other hand, while not a superpower, was still powerful, and Egypt was always looking to expand as well, and if it did, it would also have to go right through Judean territory. And I just want to give some background so we can picture Judah's position at this time. It was at the western end of the whole area that was heavily fought over called the Fertile Crescent. It extended in the east from the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern-day Iraq all the way to modern-day Israel in a crescent-shaped area with its moon-like bend to the north in the area of southern Turkey today. The western side extended up to and parallel to the Mediterranean Sea in between the two sides and below the bend to the south was the Arabian Desert, whose dry dust threatened to evade the fertile areas with dangerous and windy storms. Only the irrigation systems put in place by those in charge in the Fertile Crescent kept the desert at bay. Now, Judah lay at the very western end of the Fertile Crescent. The western end has several names, by the way. I'll call it the Levant, which includes several regions. There's Palestine, where the kingdom of Israel and Judah were, and Phoenicia north of Palestine on the coast. And then to the north of that is Syria, though at this time there weren't Syrians living there in the modern sense. And Assyria was right at the center of that fertile crescent in the north, where the source waters of the great Euphrates and Tigris rivers were. And Babylon was in the middle of the eastern side of the crescent, in a spot where the two rivers flowed closest to each other. The eastern side was dominated by the two rivers, and the Greeks gave it a name which has stuck ever since, Mesopotamia, land between rivers. The southern end on this side was divided further into areas called Akkad and Summer. Akkad was basically between Assyria and Babylon, and Summer was south 
of that between Babylon and the Persian Gulf were the two rivers in their journey. That was Western civilization at the time. And Assyria ruled nearly all of it in the early 700s through most of the 600s BCE. It was a flat area, very open, too, so it was easy to wage war, which kings searching for glory and for wealth often did. And just beyond the Fertile Crescent on the western side was Egypt, a wealthy civilization that would bring much prestige and wealth to anyone who dared conquer it. So, of course, when the Assyrians gained control of the Fertile Crescent, Egypt was a tempting target. Though it was difficult with the technology and the communication tools at the time for Assyria to extend that far. And, of course, the easiest place for Egypt to expand was right up the Levant. So control of the area would go back and forth between Assyria and Egypt. And right in the middle of that power struggle was Judah. The kingdom of Judah was in a precarious state. It was this kind of buffer kingdom between Egypt and Assyria. And thankfully for them, it was fairly distant from the power centers of those two powers. And so, in some ways, it could remain independent if none of those powers were strong or if it conducted its foreign policy well. But that would be something hard for any human, any king to do. After all, it's impossible to please two masters. So really, it'd take a miracle, divine intervention for Judah to survive. And this is the context of the history we're about to dive into. In the early 710s BCE, Assyria was making a big push down the Levant and into Palestine. And Judah was facing Western civilization's superpower. Assyria had previously already conquered Israel, Judah's northern neighbor. And it was around this time that the king of Judah, Hezekiah, stopped paying tribute to Assyria. This was a bold move. And it makes you wonder if any of the Jews living at that time thought such an action would lead to a repeat of what happened to Israel earlier. It's a nice, fun exercise to think about. What would you think at that time as well? Well, the answer would depend on whom you trusted. If you were just looking at the strength between Judah and Assyria on paper, you'd definitely see it one way. It'd be kind of like Taiwan today facing China. What are Taiwan's chances if China decides to invade? Well, it was the same situation with Judah in the 700s, simply based on things like the number of troops, population size, amount of wealth. You'd be crazy to think Assyria couldn't just gobble you up. But in Judah's favor is at this time it's ruled by one of its greatest kings, Hezekiah who led Judah into a period of revival. He restored true worship to God. He crushed idolatry in his kingdom. He cleansed and restored the temple. And God blessed the kingdom as a result. This was in part due to a productive partnership with the prophet of God named Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the longest-serving biblical prophets, and he had prophesied during the reign of the three previous kings. So he had quite a bit of knowledge and experience with the dangers Judah was in. He was there prophesying during the reign of Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, 
who paid tribute to Assyria to protect Judah from a hostile alliance between Syria and Israel. Now, this is a typical strategy for a buffer state to ally with a stronger power to ward off threats. But Ahaz's action here starts a whole chain of events that cascades into Hezekiah's reign because it turned Assyria's attention toward Judah. And it was totally unnecessary because Isaiah told Ahaz God was going to deliver Judah, but Ahaz was a wicked king and didn't trust God. At first, Ahaz just gave Assyria money. He stripped gold from the temple in Jerusalem to pay the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III for protection when Israel and Syria allied to invade Judah. The Assyrian king agreed to save Ahaz and the Jews, and he conquered Damascus, killing the Syrian king, and eventually the Assyrians conquered Israel. But of course, this kind of protection comes with a price. It's gangsterism on a kingdom scale, and once Ahaz paid, he couldn't stop. So Judah owed tribute to the Assyrians continually. This meant higher taxes for the Jews. So if you're living in Judah at the time, you would have definitely felt things going bad. Then there is the oppression that pagan idolatry brought as well. Ahaz was a pagan worshiper who sacrificed even his own children. It was a miracle, by the way, that Hezekiah was even alive. Hezekiah returned Judah to stability, though. And with Isaiah's help, Judah is led by one of its most dynamic teams, But for any outside observer looking purely at the visible, countable strength between these two kingdoms, it doesn't look so good for Hezekiah and Judah. What an impressive sight, by the way, the ancient Assyrian war machine would look if it wasn't for all the carnage that came after it. At first, all you would see in the distance as this Assyrian army marched towards you was dust. Clouds and clouds of dust, stirred up by thousands of troops marching. And out of the dust, as the army marched closer and closer, an endless train of troops would emerge. There's actually a description of what an ancient army in action would look like. In this case, it was an army approaching Babylon, actually there to fight the Assyrians. But you can imagine how this scene would look the same regardless of who's doing the marching and where. Here's what an inscription from the royal inscriptions of King Sennacherib describes. Quote, Like a spring invasion of a swarm of locusts, they were advancing towards me as a group to do battle. The dust of their feet covered the wide heaves like a heavy cloud in the deep of winter. While drawing up in a battle line before me at the city, which is on the bank of the Tigris River, and keeping me from the water source, they sharpened their weapons. End quote. The Jews would have faced something similar, except, of course, worse. It was the Assyrian army they were facing, the Western world's first professionalized standing army, meaning the Assyrians kept an army at all times, and while that army wasn't going forth to conquer, they were being trained in the art of war. This is very different than all the other kingdoms and city-states at this time who would only call up men to form an army when needed, or maybe hire mercenaries to do the fighting instead. And it's easy to understand why it takes a lot of resources to keep thousands of men paid and fed and trained when they aren't actually contributing to a country's economy 
or production. Well, at least not directly, of course, since plunder from a successful campaign would bring a lot of wealth. The army trained in the most effective tactics in warfare at the time. The Assyrians heavily incorporated iron in their armor and armaments. This was a big deal since most of the neighboring kingdoms, city-states, and cultures around them still were using bronze and some even just wood. Iron is stronger than those two, and something like that can give a tremendous advantage in a fight. You see that a lot throughout man's history, by the way, how one innovation can just set apart a military far above the others. The Assyrians were expert at sieges, that monotonous work of rams, multi-stored siege towers, building ramps, and starving a population. And that really shows discipline in a scientific or methodical approach to war. It takes discipline for an army to consistently and successfully besiege a city, and they used proven methods over and over. Build a ramp, send the towers up the ramp, make a breach, storm the breach. And to do this required all the different parts of the army working effectively together, organized and trained to work efficiently to reach their goal. The Assyrians were the first army to combine all these elements, the engineering with the fighting techniques, and they molded it into the West's best war machine. The Assyrians were also known for the cavalry and chariots. It's around this time, actually, that you see a move away from chariots to more cavalry armed with bows. The chariots were still used with deadly effectiveness. They would use their heavy chariots pulled by four horses and they would drive them right into the enemy lines to disrupt them. Then the cavalry or infantry would come in behind in the moment of confusion to try to make the whole enemy line collapse completely. This change, by the way, occurred when the Assyrians were fighting mountain tribes. People like the Medes, who used cavalry very effectively. But you see, chariots can operate in mountainous terrain, so the Assyrians had to use cavalry themselves. The soldiers would mount the horse directly instead of being on a chariot, and by doing so, they were able to move faster and execute more complex maneuvers. You can see how the Assyrians learned over time because in earlier reliefs, you'd see two soldiers would ride one horse. One was unarmed, the other armed, the unarmed one being the attendant that would steer the horse with reins, while the other armed soldier would fire his arrows. And then later you'd see how the cavalry would just be one soldier riding on a horse using a bow or a spear and could control the horse on their own. This was, by the way, one of the reasons why the Assyrian army was so successful. It incorporated tactics of their enemies that were deemed effective. You'd see this even with slingers after they came into contact with an enemy army that used slings. They incorporated that into their infantry as well. And of course, horses now and horse breeding, all of that became a well-guarded military secret of the state. Their infantry had iron helmets, sometimes iron armor and shields. The infantry is mostly made up of spearmen or archers. About half of the army were actually archers, which was pretty new at this time. And when you think about the size of the armies, that would have been terrifying. 
The dust clouds of the army would soon rain arrows that would drench an opposing army in their own blood. They even had a class of heavy archers, and these archers would be armored. They would have a soldier attend them who would have a shield, a large wicker shield to protect them. And when you consider the fact that they had their own protection, you can see how much the Assyrian military valued these archers, and they were very important during sieges. There were also heavy spearmen with iron armor and iron shields, and you can imagine that these would be fewer in number because iron wasn't as abundant as bronze, but definitely deadly. But most spearmen were less armored, carried wicker shields, though all of them typically had iron helmets, either pointed ones or crested ones. So that was the Assyrian army, well organized and well experienced because it was used often, not just in invasions, but in suppressing revolt after revolt. They got a lot of practice because the Assyrians were so cruel, their subjects rebelled any chance they got. Here is how Chester Starr puts it in his book, A History of the Ancient World. Quote, Neither at the time nor in latter memory did the Assyrian Empire enjoy a favorable reputation. Peace and order were purchased by the subjects at a heavy price in cash and lives, a price which is frightfully evident in the Frank Assyrian records. The annals of the kings itemized jubilantly the beauty of conquest, the silver, gold, copper, iron, furniture, cattle, female slaves, and hosts of other trophies, and recount directly the brutalities inflicted on the defeated. Ashurbanipal II, for instance, boasts, quote, I destroyed them, tore down the walls, and burned the towns with fire. I caught the survivors and impaled them on stakes in front of their towns. End quote. Going back to Chester. Even more disturbing is the open brutality and violence in the great palace of the reliefs, which depict the heads of conquered kings hung in trees of the royal gardens and the human debris of battlefield and siege. Often the leaders in an area which rebelled were transplanted to areas far from their homeland. At other times they were slain by the hundreds and their grinning skulls piled neatly by the roadsides were to give food for thought to travelers. End quote. Ashurbanipal comes after this specific time period we are covering, by the way. Here's an inscription that was in an Assyrian temple that recorded how he dealt with the city of Suru, which rebelled from him and was reconquered. Quote, I built a pillar at the city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. There is a lot for a king to consider when thinking about rebelling if they read that inscription or learned about it, isn't there? First of all, think about the kind of culture that a nation would have if its palaces, its buildings, its symbols of government would be decorated with the brutal and violent depiction of its conquests. I try to imagine something like that in Congress. Instead of having a statue of Moses, the lawgiver, you have a sculpture, maybe, of General Patton riding a tank, crushing Nazi skulls. How wild would that be? Or maybe a Statue of Liberty stepping on corpses as it held the torch up. Today, that would be a sign of a pathological nation. But back then, for Assyria in the Middle East, it was normal. That was Assyrian culture. And even if it was more acceptable back then in that time period, there was still nothing like it in any of the other kingdoms in the West. 
Here's what Will Durant writes in his first volume of the story of civilization. Quote, All in all, the Assyrian government was primarily an instrument of war. For war was often more profitable than peace. It cemented discipline, intensified patriotism, strengthened the royal power, and brought abundant spoils and slaves for the enrichment and services of the capital. Hence, Assyrian history is largely a picture of cities sacked and villages or fields laid waste. End quote. The Assyrians reigned with terror, and they faced rebellion after rebellion. In return, the Assyrians employed crueler and crueler methods to try to keep the area subdued. That was what the Assyrian kings Sargon and Sennacherib were involved in when they marched up to Palestine. The Jews knew full well what to expect. Their kindred kingdom of Israel went through it after all. And Israel is a prime example, by the way, of Assyria's deportation policy. You see, the Assyrians, when taking over a palace, would kill the leaders of the resistance. Anyone else left alive, known to have resisted, typically were sold off as slaves, the most skilled and educated people, though they were usually deported to other areas of the empire where their skills and talents could be used. Families were rarely separated, and you can see in some of the reliefs depicting Assyrians forcefully deporting an entire population. None of that stopped Hezekiah from rebelling, though. He was bold, and that courage stemmed from his trust in God. You can see the demonstration of his faith and his priority he put in worshiping God because he restored many of the laws of God. He restored tithing for the Levites. The funds were then used to help clean and restore the temple in Jerusalem. He restored the true worship of God in that temple, complete with music that was set up long ago by King David. He did all of that, which shows where his heart and where his mind were. They were close to God. The Bible records about him, quote, He trusted in the eternal God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. End quote. And you see that. He even invited Israel before the Assyrians took them captive, to come down to Jerusalem to worship, which is a bold move because, remember, in his father Ahaz's time, Israel was trying to conquer Judah. Israel was basically an enemy just a few years earlier, and here he is in faith inviting them into Judah to worship God. And surprisingly, some Israelites did come, but most didn't. And when you read the history, you can see how God might have used that as a final test for Israel. They failed, and they went into captivity, as already mentioned. It was in the fourth year of Hezekiah's reign that Judah's neighbor and brother kingdom Israel was conquered by Assyria. It was after a three-year siege that was accompanied by all the horrors of a starving city. And Assyria's capital, Samaria, fell between 721 and 718 BCE. The Bible recorded that nearly 30,000 Israelites were deported from Samaria alone to the other side of the Western world. And of course, there's no telling how many others were deported from other Israelite cities. So Hezekiah acted boldly, and it was based on his faith. And such an action would lead to a greater test of his faith for all of Judah. It was a momentous decision for this tiny little kingdom to rebel. And it was all made in the context of Hezekiah trusting in God and God blessing the kingdom for it. 
you get one simple statement from the Bible about this. Quote, And the Eternal was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. End quote. You find that in 2 Kings. So Hezekiah rebelled by stopping Judah's tribute to the Assyrians, and immediately his faith was tested. When news came that the Assyrians weren't going to let Judah just stop paying tribute, Hezekiah, though, began to waver. It took some time for the Assyrians to respond, and during that time, Hezekiah and the kingdom had grown pretty wealthy. God had prospered Hezekiah, and as with many of us that are put in that kind of situation, it became easier to trust in the wealth rather than in God. And so Hezekiah, at this time, started to put his trust in Egypt to save his kingdom. Once again, a typical strategy of a buffer state, ally with a strong kingdom to protect itself. It was the same plays father had made, but there was always a risk in calling on a bigger power. And really, it's the same mistake Ahaz made. Because when that bigger power saves you, what's to stop them from turning on you? The biggest difference, though, is Hezekiah didn't pay off the Egyptians ahead of time. That also makes the alliance shaky, right? What's in it for Egypt if their intervention fails? Ahaz had taken the gamble to pay the Assyrians off ahead of time, and it worked. But it was also risky because the Assyrians could have also not come and just kept the money. And I think one of the reasons why Hezekiah may have wavered was that so many of the surrounding kingdoms around Judah were also looking to Egypt to save them. It wasn't just the Jews rebelling. It was the Philistines in their cities like Sidon and Ashkelon and Ekron. And Sennacherib was putting this whole area of Palestine down in some places for a second time. And all these buffer states were looking to Egypt to come to the rescue. But as the Assyrians marched, there were no signs of Egypt's mustering its army and coming out to help. I find it kind of interesting, really, when you think about how that cruelty in the Assyrian kingdom never really helped keep anyone subdued. You just couldn't keep the various cities down. And even though it was Assyrian policy to make brutal examples out of anyone who rebelled, it seemed to never deter anyone. And as an aside, there's some interesting thoughts on this as well. In school, I was taught that the cruel methods didn't work, at least not long term, and that the Next, empires just learned their lesson and became less cruel, primarily the Persians. But I read another viewpoint, which I found pretty interesting, and it comes from authors like Chester Starr and others. I first heard it in Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. But it's this idea that the cruelty of the Assyrians didn't work, and later the Babylonians were also pretty cruel, all that pillaging and sieging and raping and captive taken and deporting. That never really worked, but... It broke the city's will for independence enough so that when empires like the Persians came around, they could be more lenient. In other words, you couldn't have the Persians be so lenient without the Assyrians having been so cruel. And I find that very interesting because it just shows how hard-headed people are and how much tragedy sometimes it takes to get people to be more pliable. I've also wondered how much of it was just about technology and infrastructure at the time, it was just so easy to rebel at this time. It could take years for a distant king or emperor to muster their troops, march them to a rebellious city to besiege it or assault it. This also raises an intriguing question 
for those kings, right? Would you rather rebel and be free for maybe three years or seven years and have a chance of winning independence? Or, because life was nasty, brutish, and short at the time, maybe you'd reign double that. But as a subject king, king only in name, and you would never really know how you'd be treated later. What would you choose? Freedom for a short time or many years in subjection? Well, history shows that many of us would choose rebellion. So the Assyrians marched down their army unmolested, and it was massive. It would have been something around 200,000 people altogether. And that, by the way, was another thing that made Assyria so dangerous. They were able to deploy huge numbers of troops that would just overwhelm these smaller kingdoms or smaller city-states. You can even track that over the years, how the Assyrian armies just kept getting bigger and bigger. But at least Hezekiah, because he was so far away, from the Assyrian center had time to prepare for them. It helped too that the Jews were pretty much as far south as you could get on that fertile crescent. And of course that the Assyrians were taking over other cities along the way, which would slow them down. And Hezekiah didn't waste any of that time. He did two things of note. First, he fortified the wall of Jerusalem and then he secured Jerusalem's water supply from the invaders. He built a massive wall 23 feet wide on the top of the western hill of Jerusalem. Isaiah even records this in his writing, quote, You have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have you broken down to fortify the wall, end quote. So evidently, Hezekiah destroyed some older homes to secure the city. And it's likely he had to do this, and some of it would be directly west of the old city of David because there are just a lot of refugees coming from all over Judah seeking protection within Jerusalem. Now, Hezekiah's biggest accomplishment was securing that water supply. He wanted to deny the Assyrian army access to the only source of fresh water nearby, making it more difficult for the Assyrians to maintain a siege and at the same time ensure Jerusalem had all the water it needed to survive. He did this by chiseling a 1,750-foot-long subterranean passageway. At the time, that would have been pretty remarkable. The tunnel connected the Gihon Spring, the area's only fresh water source, down to what's called the Pool of Siloam. Before the tunnel, the water flowed freely into the Kidron Valley right outside of Jerusalem from various brooks and fountains which irrigated crops. What was left would collect in the Pool of Siloam at the southwestern part of the city. Now, the pool and the spring were fortified, but Hezekiah wanted to divert all the water from the spring to the pool and do that within the city walls. The Bible records how the Jews arrived to this strategy in 2 Chronicles 32. Quote, So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? End quote. It's a good question. The kings shouldn't be able to find water. And note the plural in that, by the way, kings of Assyria, not just one king. I'll touch on that later. But now back to the tunnel. Hezekiah didn't know exactly how much time he had before the Assyrian army arrived because the Assyrians could always just make a straight line to Jerusalem. 
So he decided to have his engineers and his laborers carve this tunnel working from both ends to meet in the middle to speed it up. And that would speed it up quite a bit, but it was also more of a challenge. They would have to start on different sides and meet in the middle, in the middle of a downward slope. The elevation change from the spring to the pool was only 12 inches, so there wasn't much room to play around. And then you'd also have to meet on the horizontal plane as well, which was difficult. The tunnel wasn't chiseled in a straight line, but it would wind back and forth due to the terrain. The Jews actually made an inscription at the pool explaining how they met each other. It's a little broken up, but understandable, so I'll give the quote. Quote, And this is the story of tunneling. The pickaxes each crew toward the other, and while there were still three cubits to cut, the voice of a man was heard calling to his counterpart, for there was a break in the rock on the right. And on the day of breaking through the miners hewed, each man toward his fellow, pickaxe against pickaxe, and the water flowed from the spring to the reservoir, 1,200 cubits, and the height of the rock above the stonecutters was 100 cubits, end quote. So there's a little piece of history coming to life from ancient Jerusalem. We don't know how long it took. Some people think maybe nine months, others say up to four years. I think the Bible is pretty clear it indicates sooner rather than later. And scientists today are still baffled on how they're able to meet, but most likely it was some kind of rock sounding technique. Gerald Fleury wrote this in his article, How the Seals of Isaiah and Hezekiah Speak for the Philadelphia Trumpet. Quote, But a great crisis was right on Judah's doorstep. The Assyrian army. Hezekiah had weaknesses just like any one of us. And from some of the artifacts that have been discovered from his region, we can see that he had a relationship with Egypt. He pursued an alliance with the Egyptians in an effort to keep Sennacherib, the leader of Assyria, out of Judah. The prophet Isaiah had warned Hezekiah against this course, but he didn't listen to God's man at that time. End quote. So Jerusalem and the Jews inside hunkered down, waiting for the Assyrians and waiting for Egyptian help, while the Assyrians methodically put Palestine back into submission. The dread of the situation must have been an immense burden, especially as correspondence of how Sennacherib conquered more and more foreign cities in the region would have reached Hezekiah. One by one, the unstoppable war machine methodically conquered cities like Hamath, Arpad, Sepharvim. By the way, I'm terrible at pronunciation if you haven't noticed. How can you stop an almost 200,000-man army? And then this war machine reaches Judah. And Judah was no match. Second Kings records this, quote, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them, end quote. Forty-six cities were taken, boasted Sennacherib. And we actually do have his boast. He had his accomplishments recorded on a cuneiform inscription on hardened clay we call the prism of Sennacherib. Cuneiform is the wedged-shaped writing, by the way. It was written in Akkadian. I suppose you could say that was the language of history at that time, the language of higher learning, just like Latin was in the Middle Ages. This prism was six-sided, so from the top or bottom, it looked like a hexagon with the writing going down the sides. And on one of those columns, Sennacherib recorded this about his invasion of Judah. Quote, As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities. 
walled forts into countless small villages in their vicinity and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps and battering rams brought near to the walls combined with the attack by foot soldiers using mine, breaches, as well as sapper work. I drove out of them 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle beyond counting, and considered them booty. This was the nightmare that happened in Israel, happening all over again in Judah. These records also imply something pretty important, by the way. The fact that this conquest was recorded in such detail shows Judah to be a significant kingdom at this time. Jerusalem wasn't some backwoods village, and the kingdom was populous, wealthy, and well-connected in trade. Otherwise, why would he gloat over such a victory? One of those cities he took was Lachish, Judah's most fortified city after Jerusalem, located 38 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Sennacherib was so proud of that accomplishment that he had a relief constructed from gypsum to depict the conquest of this specific city. You can find pictures of this relief, by the way. It's called the Relief of Sennacherib or the Lachish Reliefs. And it was massive. It was carved as decoration for Sennacherib's brand new palace in Nineveh, which was Assyria's capital. And the relief was put in a central room of the palace that was about 39 feet wide by 16 feet long. And this relief was made of 13 different panels that would have covered all four walls at the height that went over seven feet tall. And it was detailed, even showing vineyards and trees around the city of Lachish. It's one of the best sources of information on Assyrian siege tactics and methods, and it shows their trademark cruelty. What a remarkable find that was, and how incredible it is to have so much dedicated to the taking of this Jewish city. An inscription on that relief states, quote, Sennacherib, the mighty king, king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lachish, I give permission for its slaughter. End quote. And what a slaughter it was. It's quite the story it tells, actually. Lachish was indeed a fortress. It had two outer walls to defend its inhabitants. Turrets and parapets were placed on the outer wall periodically so that Jewish archers could fire arrows at the attackers. There were square openings on these walls to allow them to do so while being protected by the walls. The walls were 18 feet thick, so the relief shows Lachish to basically be like an ancient castle. A massive dust cloud announced the Assyrian rival to Lachish, and the Assyrian army surrounded the city. Sennacherib, the king himself, set up his royal command on a hill southwest of the city opposite to the main gate. He was there inside a royal tent, being waited on by royal servants and courtiers, and two of them were depicted fanning him in that hot Judean heat as he watches the siege unfold. Assyrian archers and slingers approached the city in row after row after row. They fired their arrows at Lachish. An iron-tipped rainfall killed defender after defender. The Jews fired back, but their archers weren't enough to stop the Assyrians. 
The walls were less defended now, so then Sennacherib ordered the methodical, efficient, and ever-successful siege tactic of building a ramp to storm the city. The Assyrians built a huge siege ramp on the corner of the outer wall on the southwestern side of the city. That ramp still exists today. And they chose a corner on purpose. It would expose them to fewer projectiles from the defenders than if they had built the ramp against a long edge of a straight wall. The Assyrians hewed off small boulders from a rocky cliff about 130 yards away from Lachish. Starting at about 90 yards away from the city, they began to construct the ramp up to that corner. At that distance, they could start way out of reach of the Jewish defenders' arrows and projectiles. They started dumping boulders on the ground, around 14 pounds each, and the ramp started out about 50 feet wide, just wide enough to roll two siege towers, those infamous battering rams, side by side up the ramp when it's finished. Archaeologists believe that four teams of men in chains would pass stones from man to man, from quarry to the end of the ramp. It was efficient. No buckets, no hobbling over an uneven ramp, just a long human chain carrying boulders up a growing ramp and dumping or pouring them down to extend it and build it. Teams of men worked night and day, carrying and pouring boulders onto this ramp. None of them tired, none of them stumbled, none of them fell asleep or were drowsy, and none of them had an unfastened belt, Isaiah prophesied. Over 160,000 stones a day were moved. When the ramp reached the firing range of the defenders, the Assyrians hoisted large L-shaped shields to protect the men. These large shields formed a slow advancing and rising shield wall toward the city. Higher and higher, wider and wider, closer and closer the ramp was built and the shield wall approached. The defenders were powerless to stop it. As the ramp grew higher, the outer wall became less and less of an impediment. There's not much a wall can do if it doesn't rise above the ground. As they got closer, a layer of earth was poured on the boulders to even it out, and then hewn logs were laid on top of that. Now the shield wall reached the city. Now the ramp reached the city. It was now 50 feet tall, and 40 yards wide so that four or five battering rams could fit side by side. Micah the prophet had long before prophesied, harness your chariot horses and flee, you people of Lachish. But it was too late for the defenders now. The shields were removed and out came the infamous Assyrian battering ram. These look like how you'd imagine a tall tank would look like if it was built with ancient technology. They were wooden-wheeled vehicles that looked like chariots, but with taller, thick leather sides that extended to the front so that it could protect the archers in the back. And out from the front of each of these vehicles extended a massive iron-tipped spear, which was the battering ram. On the top was a turret with Assyrian archers who'd rain iron death on the walls. A whole squad of these battering rams were rolled up this massive ramp, by troops inside the siege tower and behind the battering ram. This was back-breaking work, and some of them were having to douse fires as torches and incendiaries were being hurled at them by the Jews. But the battering rams kept coming. 
the archers on top would pick off Jewish defenders when they could. The defenders couldn't stop them. More Assyrian archers and slingers followed behind the battering rams, firing volley after volley to protect the siege towers as much as possible. It made it nearly impossible for the defenders to stand their ground. Nothing the Jews fired, threw, or hurled worked. Still, the battering rams kept coming. The wooden wheels whirled over timber and stone and dirt, crushing their own wounded and dead. The Jews, seeing the wall was about to be breached, rushed to make their own ramp on the inside so they could rush defenders to that corner. It's pretty amazing too. These Jews were fierce fighters. Finally, the Assyrian battering rams reached the wall and once there, the troops would swing that spear back and ram it into the wall. The spear would become lodged in the wall and then the iron tip would be jostled to loosen the mortar and to weaken the wall. Over and over, the spears battered the wall until it crumbled. These rams pierced the defensive wall and behind them, thousands of Assyrian spearmen poured in to kill the defenders that were still left alive. The Jews rushed their last remaining defenders, but there simply weren't enough to hold back the thousands and thousands of spearmen. It was a massacre. Wave after wave of spearmen and archers and slingers overwhelmed the defenders and took the city over. The relief depicted Jews trying to escape as that breach was made, carrying their worldly possessions on their back, but it was too late. They are now captives of Sennacherib. Remember, he was there watching it all with his long black beard resting on his royal tunic fringed in gold. His feet rested on a footstool, and his servants kept fanning him in the heat, the same heat that dried out the throats of those Jewish captives and beat them down as they were paraded before the king. Line after line of Jewish captives were marched out of that city. The relief shows the Jewish men had beards. They wore round caps on their head. It depicts women and children as well, some of them leading camels. They're all shown to be going into exile, victims of Assyrian deportation policy. And some of these captives, most likely some of the leaders, they were marched up a hill to the Assyrian encampment to where Sennacherib's throne was there, so they could submit to the king and receive his judgment. In front of him, the relief depicted that other rulers of the city were being tortured and executed. Three captives were impaled on poles. Some are having their throats slit by iron daggers. Two captives are shown being flayed alive. It was gruesome. Archaeologists found a large pit, by the way, dated to this time period, and it contained more than 1,500 bodies. And once again, just like with Israel, the best and the brightest were taken captive and those left behind were forced to dig this massive grave for thousands of their dead comrades. This was Assyrian justice. And you can see it all played out on the long relief that once decorated Sennacherib's palace. What we could see thousands of years later, Hezekiah would have heard about that day. And he was terrified. After all, he knew what happened to their brother nation Israel, so he had a pretty good idea of what would be coming his way. Lachish was a heavily fortified city, and it fell with very little trouble, really, for the Assyrians. He would have known about the deportation and the plundering, and so he got desperate. 
The Bible records this in 2 Kings 18, quote, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended. Return from me. That which you put me will I bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. End quote. Hezekiah's response to the fall of Lachish and what looked like the impending destruction of Jerusalem was to try to pay off Sennacherib. Sennacherib, by the way, demanded an outrageous sum. And if you notice, it doesn't say that Sennacherib said he would not attack Jerusalem. All the Bible shows was that his response was to name a very large sum. And Hezekiah was only able to pay it by raiding the temple of its wealth. And it must have been just absolutely gut-wrenching for this king who had done so much to turn his people back to God, clean up the temple, restore it and adorn it, and then to have to take it all off. He was undoing some of his greatest accomplishments. And that sum, by the way, that's multiple millions of dollars worth today. That tribute was so great, it was recorded by Sennacherib in cuneiform, carved on a pair of human-headed and winged bulls, flanking the main entrance to his throne room in Nineveh. The inscription is from an area that's found under the stomach of that bull, and it looks like he even inflates the numbers. I read that tribute, by the way, was one of the largest tributes ever given to an Assyrian king. In fact, it was the third largest gold tribute recorded and eighth largest silver tribute that was recorded over a span of 200 years of Assyrian rule. So this isn't like some simple payoff. When Hezekiah said, name your price, Sennacherib purposely went for an outrageous sum, and Hezekiah had to pay it with basically his life's greatest accomplishment. It would be very demoralizing. It also shows you how wealthy Judah was at this time. So Sennacherib receives this enormous tribute and he still decided to attack Jerusalem. Quote, And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rapsuris and Rapshakeh with a great host against Jerusalem, and they went up and came to Jerusalem. End quote. This was such a low blow. I could only picture a handful of world leaders ever doing this, maybe someone like a Putin but it's par for Assyrian foreign policy. It's also interesting here that Sennacherib didn't go to the capital himself. He seems very content to revel in his spoils from Lachish. But he sends a massive army, 185,000 troops to Jerusalem. Once again, the army is preceded by dust cloud as thousands and thousands of archers, spearmen, and hundreds of siege engines were marched to Jerusalem. Assyrians have it down to a science, so they are supremely confident. They surrounded Jerusalem. Sennacherib even says that he shut Hezekiah up like a caged bird. So finally, with this army surrounding Jerusalem, with Egypt having failed to save Hezekiah after 
his own kingdom's strength and arms failed to defend the kingdom. After the wealth failed to spare them, Hezekiah finally turned to where he should have turned to all along. Finally, he turned to God. It's so human though, isn't it? To turn to God only after everything else fails and there's no other option. This army is camped around Jerusalem, making preparations, but it hadn't actually attacked yet. Rabshakeh, who is the king's cupbearer, by the way, he comes out and calls for King Hezekiah to deliver a message from Sennacherib. Out comes Eliakim and other members of the king's court to hear it. Rabshakeh is so arrogant that in this message, he pretty much just boasts and boasts and then even outright lies about God. But it starts out with a great question. Here's what the Bible records. Quote, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein you trust? In other words, where does Hezekiah get this confidence to rebel? Who is he trusting to protect them from Sennacherib? And Rapshka basically goes on. He says, is it your own strength? Well, it can't be. Lachish just went down. And while it took some time, at no point did it even cross the Assyrian mind that it wouldn't be sacked. Is it trust in Egypt? Well, it can't be there either. Egypt and their horses and chariots, they didn't come out after all. Is it supernatural intervention? Rapshka says, well, how can that be? Hezekiah took down all the altars of the fake gods. So how are they going to defend you now? Are you really going to depend on just one god? Rapshika then offers Hezekiah a chance to submit, but he does it with really what can only be a sarcastic and insulting joke, one which highlights the strength of Assyrian arms, of course, and the weakness of Judah. He says, quote, Now therefore, I pray you, give pledges to my lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver you 2,000 horses you are able on your part to set riders upon them, end quote. In other words, here's the deal. You submit, we'll give you 2,000 horses even. Oh, wait, you don't even have enough soldiers to use them. So it's not a real deal, and it just shows arrogance displayed by someone who thinks he's got the whole situation under control. And then Rapshika rambles on a bit more again, and then he says this, that God told the Assyrians to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. Now, maybe he meant his own God, but it's most likely just a lie to weaken the Jews' faith in their one and only God. And you can tell that it was not something the Jewish leaders wanted to be spread around. So at this point, Eliakim asks Rabshakeh to speak in Syrian, not in Hebrew, so the people wouldn't understand what he's saying. Eliakim is worried that the Jews, when hearing those taunts, will lose heart, lose morale, and be less inclined to fight or do what was necessary to resist. Rapshika can tell, based on Eliakim's reaction, that he finally hit a sore point. So you can kind of see that his questions have been basically probing the Jews all along to see where he could attack them diplomatically. And the fact that Eliakim reacted at that one comment showed Rapshika that the Jews were trusting in God. And so Rapshika, knowing this in even greater arrogance, belted out even louder, quote, Thus says the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the eternal, saying, the eternal will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. End quote. So Rapshika attacks their faith and tries to weaken the people. In fact, he makes an offer straight to the people of Jerusalem. Quote, 
hearken not to it, Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present. Come out to me, and then eat you every man of his own vine and every one of his fig tree, and drink you every one the waters of his cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and of honey, that you may live and not die. And hearken not unto Hezekiah, when he persuades you, saying, The Eternal will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? End quote. Pretty good question. He repeats that last point one more time before he finally stops his shouting. The deal isn't great, by the way. You can live, but we will still deport you. But hey, we'll put you somewhere up nice where you're going to live. And wouldn't that be better than just dying there? But the Jews didn't fall for that deal because even though the Jews could hear him, they held their peace and obeyed Hezekiah's command not to answer. So you can see that his leadership was intact. The people were still following him. And now they're all trusting God at this point. When he heard the report from Eliakim, Hezekiah rent his clothes and covered himself in sackcloth before he went into the temple. He sent Eliakim, Shebna, and the leaders of the priests in sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah. And now remember that this is a time of war. The city is surrounded. The city is prepared for the siege. But you can still see that the Assyrians had a massive advantage. Hezekiah turned to a single prophet, God's representative, you could say. And Hezekiah told Eliakim to go to Isaiah and go see if maybe God heard those words, those taunts and lies from Rapshika, and maybe God will reprove or censure the Assyrians in some way. Isaiah told Eliakim God's response. Here's what the Bible records. Quote, Thus says the Eternal, Be not afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. End quote. This was about the best news you could hear if you were Hezekiah. Now remember, God is still in some ways testing Hezekiah. The army was still out there. And of course, if you're a Hezekiah, and you heard that response, you'd want to know, when was God going to do that? Well, it wasn't right away. But still, Hezekiah held out in faith. And you can tell it was stressful for Hezekiah. The Bible shows that Hezekiah's health took a turn for the worse during this crisis. Meanwhile, the Assyrians hadn't attacked yet because they were waiting on Sennacherib. And it looks like that he's going to, at some point, join that army, like in Lachish, and preside over the systematic takedown. Rapshakeh returned to Lachish to report on Jerusalem to let Sennacherib know what Hezekiah's response was, that he wasn't going to surrender. But when he got there, Sennacherib was gone. At this time, he was warring against Libna, a town that was independent from the Jews, but apparently an easy target and worth the Assyrian king going out of his way to plunder and sack it. Libna wouldn't have been fortified because obviously Sennacherib didn't take the bulk of his army, though he would have had his elite personal guard with him, and those guys would have been armored in the latest technology, armed to teeth and iron, and even if the numbers weren't great, they would have been his elite troops, his best trained troops, probably the best troops in all of Western civilization at the time. 
While these soldiers were mopping up in Libna, Sennacherib learns from a spy that Ethiopia had joined forces with Egypt and that they were looking to fight against the Assyrian army. Like I said before, Judah was a buffer state, so this was the perfect opportunity for Egypt to strike against Assyria while it was busy with Judah. So when Sennacherib heard this, he changed his plan and he went towards Jerusalem because now he wants to conquer as soon as possible. He'd say he's got some urgency in his step. He wants to wrap up this loose end before he meets Egypt in the field. He can't have some enemy behind you waiting to stab you in the back, right? And of course, he's probably excited at the chance to conquer the Fertile Crescent, all of it now, and also take a stab at conquering Egypt. You could say this was the moment he had been waiting for. So Sennacherib begins to march to Jerusalem, and on his march, he sent a letter to Hezekiah that essentially says, I'm coming for you. His letter made it to Jerusalem while Sennacherib was about a day's journey out. And here's what the Bible records was in this letter in the book of Isaiah. Quote, Let not your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed as Gazan and Haran and Rezeph and the children of Eden which were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arphad and the king of the city of Sepharvim, Hena and Iva? End quote. Sorry about that poor pronunciation once again. But this indicates to me that Sennacherib wanted to make sure Hezekiah didn't find out about Egypt potentially intervening, because if you notice, he leaves Egypt out of it. No matter, though, Hezekiah had already put Egypt behind him. When Hezekiah receives the letter, he is not dismayed. Once again, he turns to God for help. He actually takes the letter with him into the temple, and he spread it before God and started praying. And I love that, because of course God would know it was in the letter already, But you see this close relationship between Hezekiah and God at the time. He's taking the letter to God and saying, look, see what it says. God was very real to Hezekiah. Hezekiah prays, quote, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwell between the cherubims, you are God, you alone of all the kings of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O eternal, and hear. Open your eyes, O eternal, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which has sent to reproach the living God. End quote. Hezekiah must have read the letter to God in the temple there. You get a strong indication that he was facing the Holy of Holies while doing so and praying about it. Inside the Holy of Holies is the mercy seat, which is a cover over the ark. And Hezekiah was there asking for mercy. Hezekiah goes on and prays this, quote, Of a truth, eternal, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O eternal, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you are the eternal, even you only. End quote. God heard that prayer and answered once again through his prophet Isaiah. And so you see how the kingdom of Judah is helped immensely by this relationship, king and prophet, both seeking God, helping each other out in this time of crisis. When the kings and the prophets work together, good things happen for Judah 
And this is one of the greatest examples of that. I won't go through all of God's answer, but he does give us this wonderful image showing us who is in charge. He says this about the Assyrian king, quote, Because your rage against me and your tumult is come up into mine ears, therefore will I put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came, end quote. So God compares the king of Assyria to an animal that will be turned away with God holding the reins. God's in control. And he also made this stunning prophecy, quote, Therefore thus says the Eternal concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. End quote. So everything the Assyrians were known for, the numerous archers, the siege towers, the battering rams, the ramps, none of it would come before the city. What a mighty prophecy for the people of Jerusalem. And that night, God fulfilled it. God sent an angel, and the Assyrians didn't even stand a chance. Here's what the Bible records. Quote, Then the angel of the Eternal went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. End quote. That's it. We don't get a relief depicting the details. We don't know exactly how they were even cut down. But what we know is that early in the morning, the Jews saw nothing but dead corpses. All the Bible records is this, quote, And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. End quote. A little extra emphasis there on the dead. It was an answered prayer, a fulfilled prophecy, and now a dead army. Either an advanced party reports this to Sennacherib, that his army is wiped out, or maybe Sennacherib himself arrived and found out with his own eyes. We don't know. The Bible didn't record that. All the Bible recorded was this, quote, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh, end quote. It's a very matter-of-fact statement in the official history of the Jews, a people who don't glorify war, which contrasts greatly with the boastful accounts of an arrogant Assyrian king ruling over a people that celebrated cruelty and violence. God didn't have anything to prove to anybody. He just does what he says. Maybe the fact that the account ends abruptly indicates Sennacherib didn't see for himself, or maybe he did see the dead troops, but he was just a man, after all, insignificant and puny compared to God. God didn't even bother recording the details. Now that's something a being in total control would do. You don't have to rub it in if you're 100% confident in your supreme power, do you? But in defeat, you can't record those because that's asking for trouble. Showing weakness in Assyria was fatal. You see that prism that records what Sennacherib did to Lachish. It never mentions the taking or the attempt to take Jerusalem. That silence said more than what Sennacherib's proudful boasts did. He couldn't take it. And think about it. If he could have, why wouldn't he have? Why stop at Lachish? Why not take the capital of Judah? Why not force Hezekiah to pay tribute? Everywhere else, the Assyrians took down the capitals or the prime city-states, but not in Judah. 
There's no loud boast about Jerusalem falling, only silence. The silence of an angel killing 185,000 troops and leaving them as dead corpses. And now it starts to make more sense. Why that relief, picturing the defeat of Lachish, decorated the brand new place at Nineveh. Sennacherib went back defeated and somehow had to spend the destruction of that army as some kind of victory. So he decorated his new palace with Lachish, telling his people of what a hard-fought but glorious victory that was. He recorded his conquest of the 46 cities in Lachish on clay prisms, three of which have been found, by the way, and one of which was quoted earlier. He mentions how he trapped Hezekiah like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem, but never once mentions that he conquered Jerusalem. Any archaeologist or scholar would be perplexed if they didn't believe what the Bible wrote. Most modern scholars just believe that Sennacherib fought the Egyptians and lost his army in that fight. Ancient scholars were also at a loss of how to describe it. The ancient Babylonian scholar Barossus wrote about 500 years after these events, and he wrote that disease wiped the army out. Herodotus, the famous Greek historian, wrote about 300 years after these events, and he wrote that while the Assyrian army was fighting the Egyptians, a plague of mice came out, ate the bowstrings and quivers and thongs of the Assyrian shields, causing them to be slaughtered. Seems kind of wild to me. They're all wrong. But it shows how the destruction of this army was an anomaly. And there's no clear historical record outside of the Bible that explained what happened. These earlier historians made it up based on stories that were told at the time. And perhaps the stories would trace back to whatever lies Sennacherib told his court. But we have the truth from the Bible. Gerald Flurry wrote in that same article, quote, You can't always trust history and the documentation of men, but you can always trust the true history of the Bible. This is a hard lesson for mankind to learn. I've looked at the story of Sennacherib from the angle of secular documents and biblical records, and every time I read what the Bible says, I'm more and more impressed, moved, and galvanized to action. End quote. You can't rewrite the true history, and boy, how inspiring that history is. We don't know what Sennacherib told his court, if anything, because Sennacherib put all the attention on his successes. He could take all that gold and silver Hezekiah gave him and tell his people, look, I got the tribute paid back and more from the Jews. It's all good. Don't think about what happened in Jerusalem. Who cares? We stripped it of its wealth anyway. And maybe most of the Assyrians were willing to look away, but in those days, a loss like that would have been a sign of disfavor from the gods. So you can see why Sennacherib tried so hard to erase it from the record and focus on the successes. Many historians view this period from Sargon II to Sennacherib as the peak of Assyrian power. After that, there were some strong monarchs that were successful in holding on territory that was gained. But it wasn't long after Sennacherib that the kingdom of Assyria collapsed. Even Sennacherib was a casualty of a power struggle over the throne, something that happened in Assyria often at this time. The Bible records, quote, And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisrosh his god, that Adramalek and Sherezar his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, 
and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. End quote. Secular sources indicate that Sennacherib could tell his reign had peaked at some point, and he was desperately trying to stay in power. In doing so, he was seeking favor from his pagan gods, and those gods would often require the sacrifice of a child. So he was going to sacrifice two of his sons, but they killed him instead and fled. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that what God prophesied through Isaiah in that answer to Hezekiah's prayer happened. Sennacherib returned to his own land and fell by the sword in his own land. I don't think too many Assyrians would have seen that event combined with the loss of the big army as the beginning of the end. But the writing on the wall was there for the Assyrians. Sennacherib died in 684 BCE, and in about 70 years, the Assyrians were wiped out of Mesopotamia. That's short in the long cycle of history, but for a single individual, that would have felt like a long time. After Sennacherib's death, they didn't celebrate or think much about the conquest of Lachish. We know this because his face was etched out on that Lachish relief. He was literally defaced. There was no love for Sennacherib. And in a way, the kingdom of Judah was also at a peak after God saved them from Assyria. For the next 10 to 15 years after 701 BCE, when the Assyrians laid siege, Judah rebuilt those cities and gained back much of the wealth it lost. God blessed Hezekiah's reign for trusting in him during that crisis. But in this time of greatness came a moment, a moment in which if you're trying to pin down the point of Judah's fall, you could make a solid case that it started here. This may have been the moment that started all of it. And it wasn't a test of arms, of iron and blood, but of trust, trust in God which makes it all the more remarkable because only those who believe the biblical record would ever point to this moment as significant. And it reminds us all today how in all the history that we read and study, whether it's the massive armies, the successful campaigns, the great leaders of men, behind all of that, there is a supreme being making sure it all goes according to his plan. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on the trumpet.com or on kpcg.fm. I quoted some from Gerald Flurry's article, How the Seals of Isaiah and Hezekiah Speak. It was a source I used for this program in an article that's definitely worth reading. It's linked in the show notes. The thing to remember about Isaiah was that he was a prophet, not just the king's counselor or a king's personal prophet, and not even just a prophet for Judah. He was a prophet for all of Israel, And the words that were recorded in the Bible are for us today. Two clay seals were found, each bearing the name of one of the principal figures of this story. One 
spared Hezekiah's name and the other Isaiah's, though some scholars might dispute it. They were displayed at Armstrong Auditorium in Edmond, Oklahoma for a time. They were there for everyone to see this little bit of history making these figures come to life. But it's not just about history. This story is about the future. This podcast, after all, is called Rewind, Repeat. Isaiah was a prophet, and what he recorded matters to us today. Here's what Mr. Fleury wrote in that same article. Quote, You can see why God wants to keep the vision of Hezekiah and Isaiah alive. Let the stones of Hezekiah and Isaiah speak. The history they represent is awe-inspiring if we truly believe it. These stones have a thundering voice of hope for any age, but especially for the time we live in today. End quote. If you want to learn more about those seals, the tremendous history of Hezekiah and Isaiah, and what all that means, order your free copy of Seals of Isaiah and King Hezekiah Discovered, exhibit brochure at thetrumpet.com. For those who are more visual, it's wonderful because it shows beautiful pictures of the relief in Sennacherib's palace and many other artifacts and has some great maps. It's the perfect companion to this show. <laughs> 